I knew he liked me. I kind of could tell he liked me, and I didn't want to encourage it at all. But I did tell him. I said, if you can't get a date to one of your fraternity things or something, I'll go with you. Mm-hmm. And so he'd call me and say, I really tried to get somebody to go to dog patch. <laughs> I lied. And, I, and lied. I said, okay, I'll go. So I went with him to the that, and then, like I said, he'd bring me to my boyfriend's bar afterward and drop me off, and I'd be there the rest of the night doing my drugs and partying and... Hey, I'm Andrew Lacosi from Troy, Michigan, and I am currently in the military stationed at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington. I love listening to Compelled because when I am on a long or hard run, listening to the podcast and hearing about all the amazing, encouraging work God is doing through his people enables me to push through any discomfort I am feeling. Sometimes it works too well and I have to stop my run to recover from the outpouring of emotion, but it's great nonetheless. To everyone out there listening, keep getting after it. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. In our last episode, we heard from Hayden Jernigan, who grew up in a home marked by chaos. Unsure of who loved him or who wanted him, Hayden pursued everything he thought would bring him happiness. Yet he was unaware that actually his entire life, there was someone who was pursuing him. Again, you can hear that story by tuning into our previous episode with Hayden Jernigan. This week, our guests are Frank and Annette Loria. Frank was a self-righteous good guy who believed he could earn God's favor by following the rules. Annette, on the other hand, barely stopped to think if God had rules at all and instead indulged in whatever she felt like. Both of them had defined God to be whoever they thought he was, but they'd soon find out that he was entirely different. So gather around, lean in, and join us for this compelling story from the kingdom of God. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. About a month ago, while I was recording podcast interviews in Louisiana, I stayed with a couple who opened up their home to me that week. It turns out they had a pretty compelling story about God's faithfulness to them as well. And Frank kicked things off with a description of his life growing up in the 50s and 60s. I'm the oldest of four children. My mom and dad actually met in Houston, Texas and got married there and had me there. And when I was two weeks old, I'd had it with Houston, Texas, and we moved to New Orleans. And so my whole life, except for my birth certificate, is New Orleans. Pretty much, a, I think, a traditional growing up uh, experience. Dad and mom both worked outside the house. Uh, they worked together for many years. My dad owned a beauty supply house. And so uh, I would often have to go as I got older to deliver beauty supplies into some beauty salons, which was a really interesting experience in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, I would say a pretty functional family. Dad worked a lot. We would have dinner together as a family. We spent a lot of time, particularly in the summers, at the baseball field. I mean, we would be the last ones to leave. The lights would be shut off and 
we're still leaving or it's the football field or the basketball uh, court. And, and so a lot of our lives were um, wrapped around that. But, you know, from an early age, for some reason, I was uh, acutely aware of God. And, and all I knew was Roman Catholicism. And what I knew I was grateful for because I was aware of God. I was aware of Jesus Christ. I really didn't understand the gospel, and I did not read the Bible because I didn't even know what a Bible was. I was baptized as an infant. I made my first uh, communion. Again, those are just the things that you did. I didn't necessarily connect anything acutely religious to that. Uh, I do remember that many of my friends had a confirmation name. Well, I didn't have a confirmation name, and I was jealous that I didn't have a confirmation name. So I asked my parents to uh, let me go through confirmation, not because I connected anything spiritual to that. And I'm not being critical of the Catholic Church or anyone else. That's just, I, I had God on my terms. And so if my friends have a confirmation name, I should have a confirmation name. And so I kind of like the name Matthew. So I chose Matthew as my confirmation name, having no clue that it was a book of the Bible, the first gospel, <laughs> totally no idea. So, um, so that's, I, I did not have that structured understanding. And, and I remember just in the most rudimentary of uh, confirmation classes being asked questions like about Moses or Noah, totally clueless, no idea whatsoever. I can clearly remember, though, in my adolescence and faced with many temptations and lots of guilt as a result of caving into those temptations, putting my hand on a Catholic missile and promising God, I'm only going to sin five more times. Well, probably later that day, I was renegotiating the contract. So acutely aware of God, but absolutely unaware as to the gospel, the grace of God, that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I, I went through high school basically that way, aware of God, sinning, aware of God, sinning, and just allowing time to assuage my guilt. I basically looked at God as myself, a little higher version of me. I'll tell people that I wasn't into theology. I was really into meology. I created God in my own image. So, you know, if I sinned, which I didn't want to do, particularly on days of sporting events where I needed to do well and I needed him to help me, or with girls or with passing a test, I would try to be on my best behavior so that God would bless me. And I would be due his blessing, of course, because I lived in my own mind up to the standard of that which would make God have to give me what I want and not what I didn't want. And so that's basically how my religious upbringing was. I thought God was a quid pro quo. If I do this, God has to do that. If I don't do this, well, maybe he'll let me off the hook this time. Now, while Frank was mulling over how he might earn God's favor on his next test, Annette was on the other side of town, growing up with a completely different outlook on life. 
Well, I grew up here in New Orleans as well. My dad was Jewish and my mom was Catholic. He was nominal. He was, you know, in New Orleans, most of religion is pretty much culturally religious. So my mom was mostly culturally Catholic, my dad culturally Jewish. He was from a wealthy background and my grandfather was a philanthropist here in New Orleans, very well-respected Jewish man. And so I kind of grew up with Catholicism and Judaism in my background, although I went to Catholic schools and uh, so that's how I grew up. I'm the third of four girls and uh, my dad left when I was seven. So um, it was not little women, let's just say. It was a big home, so we all had our own rooms, locks on our doors, forbidden to borrow clothes. My mom reared us. She was an intellectual. She loved Freud. She loved Nietzsche. She loved all things. She loved Dr. Spock, and that's kind of the way we were reared. We were sort of free-range kids. That title didn't really exist in those days. And so she worked full time and, and just showed up around dinner time. And we had a woman that was there in the afternoons. But when dinner came, we had to be home at six o'clock. The phone couldn't ring between six and seven. We watched the news together and we kind of editorialized what we believed about the news during the hour of dinner. So, and then we went in our separate ways. So I think she tried to do the best job she could. I went to Catholic schools. I went to mass with my mother, although she was always very maudlin about it because she was divorced and basically excommunicated. So she sat through the mass with her head down most of the time. And it was kind of sad to think, why are you coming to this if they've rejected you, was even what I thought as a child. When your dad left your family, you were seven, you said. Mm -hmm. How did that affect you? Uh, well, I think it caused me to just feel very uh, separate from the family in general. We moved from the neighborhood we grew up in with my dad. My mother hated that neighborhood. And so as soon as my dad left, she moved us up to the university area. And um, I got in a lot of trouble fast. And in eighth grade, um, you sat in one area if you, wanted, if you brought your lunch. You sat in another area if you bought your lunch. And you were punished if you didn't have either and had to go sit off to the side. I don't know why this one particular day I didn't have my lunch. But uh, so I'm sitting with my girlfriends and the nun comes over, Sister Christina, and she came over and said, what are you sitting over here for? I don't see any food. And I said, well, I want to sit with my friends. And she goes, oh, no, if you don't have any food, you got to sit over there. Well, I stood up and I punched her in the face. And I had a violent temper. I tried to kill my mother when I was a kid. I stuck a knife up in her. I was like, I'm going to kill you. And she was very, she did the best with me she could. Anyway, I didn't kill her, but just very violent. And so anyway, I got kicked out of this Catholic school. And so my sister was going to a private school in New Orleans. And so I, next day I'm on the bus going to this private school. Um, made some friends in the neighborhood, went and just some crazy stuff. So I started doing drugs at 12. Um, just, I was an urban kid. We hung out in the neighborhood, um, just had access. We were street kids, kind of, even though it was a lovely neighborhood. And again, we had help that was there in the afternoon. As long as I was home at six o'clock, from the afternoon to six o'clock, we just got in trouble. Smoking cigarettes. My mom let me smoke cigarettes until she actually got me started smoking cigarettes. We went to New York 
When I was 12, she took each one of us to New York when we were 12. And while we were there, it rained a lot of the time. So we played a little game where you take a cigarette and you put a quarter in a glass over uh, with a Kleenex over it. And you take turns burning holes in the Kleenex and eventually the quarter falls into the water and you get to keep it. So I would go down to the Waldorf's shop downstairs and get us both a pack of cigarettes and we'd play the game for hours until it stopped raining. So obviously I became addicted and until I burned a hole in my bedspread, then my mom said, can't smoke in the house. But other than that, I started smoking cigarettes and dope at 12. So she didn't know about the, the, uh, the drugs. What were your thoughts on God at that point? After my mom stopped going to Mass, she still suggested that we go. And so I would go over there, sit behind the church and smoke with my friends, grab a little bulletin, and then go home. So I didn't really have any interest in it. I sort of figured I had life figured out in my own way, even as a kid, and got in a lot of trouble, but always felt like I could handle it. So God was really not interesting or important to me at all. Occasionally, I would have some sort of a tug on my heart, but for the most part, I just did whatever I wanted to do. I just do whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it, and I rationalized everything. If I stole clothes from a store, I remember riding my bike to J.C. Penney's, and I stole a whole outfit and put it, this is before all those little checks that would beep, and I put it under my clothes, and I rode my bike home thinking, oh, I'm going to wear this Saturday night. It's such a hot outfit. And I thought, Penny's has got billions of dollars. They're certainly not going to miss one outfit. And I was so excited that I was going out with this new outfit. I mean, I never, it never gave me a second thought. And I'd get caught. My mom found out I stole. She made me go back and return a belt. I cried. I acted like I was so sorry, and it was terrible. And I told him I'd never do it again and walked out and just kind of smirked and went back to do my thing. So very dishonest, very deceptive. I feel bad. I felt bad for my mom because she did the best she could as a single mom, and I made her life hell. So I started going to bars too, and had little old men at a little bar up on Chapatula Street, which is a you know, biased drink. Started with slow gin, and then I started hanging out in clubs. Back in those days, uh, the age of drinking was 18, and. So I had a fake ID. I don't know how someone let me in, but since I was 12 or 13, we'd go in the quarter. We just, we were just crazy. I dated bar owners, uh, married men. Growing up in high school, I went to an all-girls Catholic school, did drugs on campus and almost got kicked out. Just uh, a really way over my head in terms of all that stuff. And still managed to be a cheerleader and a B student. So. I mean, I managed to be able to juggle it all. But I think it made me lonely. But I hurried up and had a bunch of little friends, different pockets of friends I hung around with. So I was always partying, always found some place to go every weekend. Never stayed at home. I hated home. And so I did have a blind date one night. A guy was a drummer. And so I thought, oh, cool, this will be fun. Um, he's playing some gig, and that'll be great. Well, we went, and it turned out it was a convention downtown and it was his band was going to work with the children of the conventioners. So it turned out that we were sitting with these kids and I was totally bored but there was a group that came in from South Louisiana and did something called Godspell. They kind of had a little presentation of that and I remember the teenagers trying to talk to me about God and personal relationship and and I thought oh gee you guys are corny. 
Anyway, they said they'd call me and talk to me more about it and took my phone number and I never heard from them again. So that was really the only thing I ever really heard about anything besides Judaism or Catholicism. I mean, I'd go to synagogue with my grandfather and hear him uh, speak in Hebrew. And I thought, these must be God's chosen people because they have their own language. I mean, this is how simplistic. I was just a kid, but I liked to go to synagogue with my grandfather. Everybody knew him and he was important. And um, so occasionally I'd go with him. And the other church said that they were the one true church that I went to. And the Jews said they were the one true church, but I believed them because they had their own language. I mean, that's, you know, that was about as far as it went. But as different as their growing up years had been and the life choices they had made, Frank and Annette were just about to cross paths for the first time, which you'll hear about right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Welcome back to Compelled. Frank and Annette had both grown up in New Orleans, Louisiana, but had completely different backgrounds. Frank had grown up in a stable home with an intact family, and he tried to be a good kid. Clean cut, respectful of authority, and didn't get into trouble. In fact, Frank figured that he and God were pretty tight. Annette, on the other hand, could care less about respecting authority. 
Since the age of 12, she had been routinely smoking, doing drugs, drinking at bars and clubs with a fake ID, and dating any number of older men. In her mind, God might be real, but beyond that, she didn't really think about him. Shortly after graduating from their separate high schools, Frank and Annette both enrolled at Louisiana State University, about an hour away in Baton Rouge. Annette promptly began dating the owner of a local bar, who was almost twice her age, while Frank joined a fraternity on campus and was focused on his education. Then, just a few weeks later, they met each other for the first time at a party where Frank was quite smitten. I was totally, as you could tell, completely thunderstruck. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, Annette and I would see one another because I was taking a Spanish class and Annette was taking a French class. And so as I am coming out of Spanish class one day, Annette is coming out of French class. And I said, hey, Annette. Uh, of course, my heart is probably racing at that moment. And uh, I said, where are you going? She said, well, I'm going to language lab. I said, well, it just so happens. I'll be going to language lab from now on. So she would go and she would do her French studies in her little cubicle area, and I would go and get my Spanish and sleep through the entire thing until I heard that she was getting up. And so our paths just kept intertwining. I would see her at the fraternity house, or I'd see her one day. I saw her at Christ the King Catholic Church, which was right next door to the Deke House, and which you know was interesting to have the wildest fraternity on campus right next door to the church. But I remember having that running into her coming out of the mass. Then we walked back to her room. So, and she would tell me, you know, if you can't find a date, you know, I'll go with you. So I just never could seem to find a date, and I would just call her, and she would go with me. And then he'd drop me at my boyfriend's bar. Then I would afterward. drop her at the bar. Didn't uh, phase you. No. And, and he was a brother to me. He was like, I mean, I had only known bad men. And my dad left, and it's just my girls and my sisters and me. Mm -hmm. And he was the nicest guy I had ever met. I mean, he was squeaky, nice, clean. I tried to fix him up with the baton twirler from LSU that was my next-door neighbor in the dorm. I said, you've got to, you are the nicest girl I know. And this guy I met the other night is the nicest guy. I have to put y'all together. Mm -hmm. I mean, y'all would just be a perfect nice couple. <laughs> so, I mean, he became the brother I never had mm -hmm. and a nice man. So there were just, we just, our paths just continued to connect. There were several members of the fraternity that began to invite me uh, to Bible studies. And since I liked the guys that went to those Bible studies and was, again, acutely aware of God, though totally ignorant of the gospel, I would attend those studies. And the first Bible I ever had, I was walking to class. This man was standing under a big oak tree, and he handed me a, a Bible about this big. It was a green cover, and it was a Gideon Bible. Well, I didn't know what a Gideon was, but it was a little, and so that was the first Bible that I had, and I would, when we had these Bible studies, I would just have that and have no idea where we were turning when they wanted to turn to a particular book of the Bible. I was totally clueless. But at that time, was becoming at least a little more aware. And then my sophomore year, one of those uh, upperclassmen that I met at that rush party invited me to go to a midweek church service. And again, I am as lost as a ball in high weeds. I 
still don't understand the gospel at all. I'm still quid pro quoing with God. So this pastor, he's telling of all these experiences he's had with God and just really riling up the congregation and uh, asking if anybody wants to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Ghost. And so next thing I know, you know, my hand is up. Now I'm like, how did that get there? And then he's inviting people to come down to the front of the church where they could speak in tongues and get filled with the Holy Ghost or baptized in the Holy Ghost. And there are people falling all around me. And I'm looking back for my fraternity brother, like, am I, am I just being made a fool of right now? What has happened? Why were you walking up there? Like, what was I that? can't begin to tell you. All I know is my hand went up, my body got up out of the pew and walked down to the front, and I don't know why. <laughs> um, God was just taking a dead man and moving him where he would because he was about to resurrect me. And... Uh, so a young man and a young lady said, hey, would you like to find out a little bit more and just go with us? And I said, sure, this is very uncomfortable watching people speak in a peculiar language and falling all over the floor. So uh, I went into a classroom with them um, and just asked me, are you a Christian? Well, someone insulting to me, of course I'm a Christian. But again, I did, know, did not know what a Christian was. And I thought it was a person that believed in Jesus, believed what about Jesus, I couldn't tell you, and you just do the best you can. Again, there were just external things that I did to try to stay on God's good side if I could. So they, that evening, said, would you, I can't remember exactly, but would you like to pray a prayer to know that you're, to know that you're a Christian? Because I didn't if they would have asked me the question, I don't recall whether they did, do you know you're going to heaven? I would have probably said, well, I hope so. I think so. And that would have been purely predicated upon how good I thought I was. If they would have asked me if you died right now and you stood in front of Jesus and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? I am sure I would have come up with an inventory of things I had done well in my mind, not necessarily what he would have thought, and hope that they would outweigh, if they were scales in heaven, outweigh my bad works. Bad works according to my definition of bad, good works according to my definition of good, because I had no idea that my righteousness had to measure up to Christ's righteousness if he was going to accept me into his totally holy heaven and his totally holy presence. So March 23rd, 1976, Wednesday night, I became a child of God. And waking up the next morning, I had to get a Bible. I just had to have a Bible. Nobody told me that I recall that I needed to have a Bible. So I went to a nearby bookstore and somehow came, found the money to buy that Bible and began to read it and read it and read it and started telling people in the fraternity that they needed to know Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so in 
So can I explain that? No, I can't. I just once was lost and now was found, was blind, and now I saw. And so I quickly developed a reputation in the fraternity. I became Father Frank and uh, wanted to know God, wanted other people to know God. And so here is Annette in my life, and she's got to know God. Because you still have the biggest crush on her. Totally. Well, he's always been a really nice guy, so uh, not much changed as far as I was concerned, except he started telling me about Jesus, which he'd never really done before. And I just thought, oh, how provincial, you know, just sitting in his little, his Cadillac and they have these really great ashtrays, and I'm just like, oh, you're so provincial. Yeah. You know, you mean a, you believe in a devil? Does he have horns? Yeah. Just like, oh, brother, this is going to be interesting. I mean, he's my, he's my best friend, so I could laugh like that and tell him I thought he was a little uh, crazy about it, but yeah. that's fine with me. Yeah. We were going to an LSU-Alabama football game in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and we were going to get on the bus with fraternity brothers. And so we got on the bus... And I gave her a little Christian booklet. And the name of the, the little booklet was, This Was Your Life. So I had asked Annette to read it while we're driving from Baton Rouge to Tuscaloosa. And, uh, and she began to read it. And I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, maybe getting in conversation with other folks on the bus or probably kind of looking down to see where she was. And all the fraternity brothers were going, you're not reading Father Frank's material, are you, Annette? I'm like, yeah. shut up. Leave him alone. You know, it's his deal. That's what he en is enjoying now. Leave him alone. And then I read this little book, and at the end, it kind of talked about where you would, your sins and where you would spend eternity. And I was like, ooh. I kind of, Frank says I gasped. I was like, oh, yeah. huh. he remembers me doing that, and that kind of gave him some hope. Yeah, <laughs> it did. Totally awkward, though. I didn't think of it as missionary dating. I didn't even know the terminology missionary dating. All I know is I knew Jesus and wanted to know him more and, uh, and uh, certainly wanted her to know him. And everybody I could get to listen to me for a second. I didn't make that up. I didn't put that inside of myself. I wasn't looking to be that way or to do those things. That's what God had done. Frank was sharing the gospel with anyone who would listen to him. Some were receptive, but others, like Annette, were not. Her crazy lifestyle hadn't slowed down at all. And while she knew that Frank didn't approve of her choices, he was just a friend, and a safe friend at that, one that she could trust as a good friend, and certainly not someone that she'd ever have any romantic interest in. I knew he liked me. I kind of could tell he liked me, and I didn't want to encourage it at all. But I did tell him, I said, if you can't get a date to one of your fraternity things or something, I'll go with you. Mm -hmm. And so he'd call me and say, I really tried to get somebody to go to dog patch. <laughs> I lied. And, I lied. I said, okay, I'll go. So I went with him to the that. And then, like I said, he'd bring me to my boyfriend's bar afterward and drop me off. And I'd be there the rest of the night doing my drugs and partying. And so, but around Frank, you know, it was kind of a different deal. I mean, he was my brother. And I didn't really divulge a lot of that part of my life to him. He could see most of it, but I don't think I ever talked about drugs or anything mm -hmm. with you. But, you know, she would bring, you know, at least she brought two guys. Is that right? At least two guys. I, th I think it was three, but who she said, Frank, I think this is the guy. I think this is, this could be the guy. What do you think? And I was just like, well, 
I was working at uh, a clothier, a clothing store during uh, either summer or some event. She'd bring this guy by. I don't know, Ned, maybe, you know, maybe, could be, seems like a nice guy. I don't know. In front of his mother happened to be in the store and knew how Frank felt about me. And here I bring this guy, Ty, in and say, what do you think, Frank? You think he's a marrying kind? Right in front of his mother. I didn't know all that, but she's sitting there seething inside of herself. Who's this gal who's making a mockery of my son here? Yeah. And what were you feeling inside you at that moment, Frank? It was interesting because I did have a crush on her when I began to pray for Annette after I'd given my life to Christ. It was not as if the Lord spoke to me audibly. It might as well have been audible. But he said, I want you to pray this way for Annette. It, it was this, even if you have to put Annette on the other side of the world from me, God, save her. And I prayed that way multiple times a day. There was not a day, not a day that went by that I did not pray on multiple occasions during the day for her salvation, even if God had to put her on the other side of the world for me. Now, that was not my prayer, as I said. And the more I prayed that, the more I wanted a net for Jesus and not for me. And so with that, his spirit kindly allowed me to hear her say that and my not go run off to the you know, where we would fit, you know, the fitting room for people at the retail store or the clothing store might just fall into a fetal position and weep, you know, until they found me and I had to come back out to work again. So God granted me uh, a peace, even in that, uh, that certainly passed my understanding. And while Frank fervently prayed for Annette and tried to share about Jesus with her whenever she'd listen, it just seemed to shoot right over her head. At the moment, Annette had other priorities on her mind. I was very unsure about college and what I was doing there. So I went to my advisor and I told him, I'm just not sure what I'm doing here. I had found a job in the, in the school newspaper. My family's in the jewelry business here in New Orleans. And so I'd worked at the jewelry store in the summers, but I'm always doing sales or one of those things. And so I saw an ad about wanting uh, a custom jeweler engraver job. So I drove up to North Baton Rouge, interviewed, turned out the guy had worked for my family in New Orleans. So I got the job and became an apprentice hand engraver. So I loved it because I was an art major and I just thought it was the coolest thing to be able to cut gold and make beautiful drop letters. And, and I was making good money. In those days, if you made $10 an hour, you were rich. And so if I made four little drop letter pieces, uh, I could do four in an hour. And so I was cranking them out, and so I was making good money. So when I went to my advisor, I said, I don't know what I'm doing in college. This is not for me. I have this great job. And so he said, well, if you drop out today, you don't get stuck with bad grades. So I was almost halfway through my college career. And so I walked right into the office and I resigned my college career. So then I was excited to go to my boss and say, guess what? I can work full time. So I drove up to North Baton Rouge and I told my boss, guess what? I can work full time. And he said, ooh, I was going to tell you today, I got to lay you off. We just don't have enough work. So I was like, okay. So I drove back to my apartment. My roommate came back from classes 
I was laying, had a little Volkswagen convertible. So I'm laying out in the parking lot in my car, just looking up at the sky. And she comes in. I said, hey, I lost my job and I'm not in school anymore. Let's go get drunk. So we went over to a little bar on um, Highland Road. And we was, I was shooting pitchers, uh, racing football players to see who could down a, a pitcher of beer first. And uh, so curfew came and I'm driving home and I hit a tree at 45 miles an hour at the south gates of LSU, which still has a nice dent in it. And so I totaled my little Volkswagen and um, my face, I had 50 something stitches in my face. Um, my roommate broke her leg and all her teeth were shifted in her mouth. It was quite a time. Needless to say, I didn't go skiing during the Mardi Gras break. And then just so I was not really insurable because I was such a bad driver. And so my mom found a place up in uh, Manchester, up in Connecticut or somewhere. And so Manchester Indemnity was my insurance company. And that day in the mail came a little notice saying that they had gone out of business. They had, uh, and so they weren't going to pay any claims. And they had no idea the night before I totaled my car. Without a car, job, or classes to attend, it didn't make sense for Annette to stay near the university. So she moved back in with her mom in New Orleans and got a job working for another jeweler during the day and a nightclub in the evenings. It was just her old life all over again. Drugs, alcohol, parties. If a massive car wreck wasn't going to serve as a wake-up call, it seemed like nothing else would either. And perhaps that was true. Perhaps what Annette really needed was just to hear a still, small voice. More on that after the break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. 
or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back. Annette was only 19, but had already lived what seemed like a lifetime's worth of bad choices. Drugs, alcohol, men, it was all the same, just doing whatever felt right in her own eyes. Sure, Frank had told her plenty of times about this Jesus guy, and that was fine and dandy for him. If it made Frank happy, great, good for him. But for her, nah, fairy tales. But Frank was still a nice friend, and she appreciated that. During the weekends, she'd go back to Baton Rouge to stay with her boyfriend who owned the bar. And sometimes, while she was in town, she'd bump into Frank, who was still attending LSU. Just so happened that one weekend, Frank saw me and he said, Oh, you want to go to church with me? I thought, I don't know. Yeah, call me, you know. We closed the bar down, and we're just getting back to his apartment. And, I mean, you must have called his house because there's no cell phones. Said, I'm ready to pick you up. What, what time of day was it? Eight in the morning, I guess. I hadn't slept. I'm still in my clothes from the night before. And I was like, okay, I'm awake. Just come off a big cocaine high. I'm just thinking, oh, now I can kind of slide into bed. And nope. <laughs> so he came and picked me up. And we went to a little church on the, called the chapel on the campus together. And so I'm sitting there having never slept, uh, just coming down off of my high, sitting there in this church and this minister said what I heard was if I'd been the only person on the planet Jesus would have died just for me because that's how much he loved me and that's how much my sin messed me up and you know he would like to take over my life and if I gave it to him he'd make it what he wanted it to be and so all that stuff in my life in addition to the fact that I'm a drug addict and have to wake up every morning and do a line of cocaine just to kind of make it wake up so I thought, I am 19 years old, and I have made such a mess out of my life. And if this is true, and you really want my life, and you made me, and you know the best how it's supposed to run, you can have it. And that's about how spiritual I was. I, they said, you want to come down? I thought, I'm not going down there. But, you know, just in my heart, that's what I said. And um, did we ever even talk about it? I don't think I told no, you. No, you didn't tell me. I didn't tell him that I'd prayed that or anything. 
So I went back to New Orleans, and the next morning I woke up, and I take my little vial, and I put my cocaine on the table, and I, I looked at it, and I poured it in the toilet. I was like, I don't want this. And then I thought, oh, wait, this is weird. Like, I wanted this last night. Why don't I want this today? And I was like, hmm, that's really weird. And uh, When you say you didn't want it, what, what do you mean by you didn't I want it? I just didn't want it. It just wasn't appealing to me. I just, I don't know how to explain it. I just, I didn't want it. And I poured it in the toilet and threw the little glass thing in the garbage. And I never did any drugs that, from that point on. And then I thought, wow, something really has happened to me. Maybe he is taking my life. And uh, so I told my boyfriend, um, I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but I went with Frank to church and I gave my life to Jesus. And um, we can go, we can still date and everything, but I, I'm going to sleep in another room. I don't think we're supposed to be sleeping together. And he broke up with me <laughs> not shortly after that. And we've been together almost a year and a half. And uh, I think I wrote you a letter, didn't I? Because we wrote each other letters because, you know, $2 a minute to call somebody who has that kind of money in those days. I remember getting the letter. I was with my roommate at the fraternity, who was a believer as well, and uh, just opening it on a small lined sheet of paper, not eight and a half by 11, smaller than that. And at the top of the At the top of the letter, it just said, I did it, exclamation point. Just big, all cap letters. And she went on to explain how she had given her life to Christ. Well, I'm just ecstatic. You know, my roommate who has been praying for Annette and probably half the Christian campus of LSU was praying for her salvation as well. And uh, I don't recall whether I tried to find the money to call her. <laughs> Obviously, our relationship had entered a new phase. I'm thinking, okay, God, I've been asking you to put her on the other side of the world from me if that's what it took for you to save her because I wanted you for her more than I wanted her for me. And that was even your doing that I would even be able to pray that. So how do I pray now? <laughs> so it's like, okay, she's a Christian. And the Lord said, pray this way. Even if you have to put her on the other side of the world for me, God, cause her to grow in her faith. Over the next year, Frank's prayer was answered, and Annette's faith in Christ grew by leaps and bounds. She was living in a different city from Frank, but he was still able to connect her with a great Bible study group that was nearby her with older believers who could mentor her. They were still good friends, but Frank had never mustered the courage to express his feelings for Annette. That is, until one day when they were hanging out after a friend's wedding. We had come back from the, the wedding. I can remember I was, we were at her apartment. I'm sitting on the floor. She's sitting on the sofa on this side of me. She's up on the sofa. And uh, Frank said, do you think you could ever love me like a wife could love a husband? I mean, we've been to a wedding and... I kind of kind of gulped deeply and thought, well, I don't feel like that about you. I mean, you're my best friend, but I'm sure if God wants that kind of relationship for us, he could do that. I'm sure he could do that. I don't even remember if I looked her in the eyes as I asked that question. It was not pre-planned, pre-rehearsed. It just came out of me. 
And Frank said, well, can we pray about it? Which I don't think I'd ever prayed out loud with somebody before that. And so we just kind of held hands and said, Lord, take our relationship and make it what you want it to be. We spent a lot of time together. I mean, virtually every time I came into New Orleans, we would do something together. Didn't have to be much, but we were together. But there was never, a, it wasn't a boyfriend, girlfriend type of thing, though I certainly wanted it to be more than that. Yet at the same time, God is, Lord, even if you have to put her on the other side of the world for me, cause her to grow. And I'm still praying that prayer. And God graciously allowed that prayer, the fruit of that prayer to be peace and patience. And that was it. He went back to LSU and I was in New Orleans. And so I worked at a bar down the street from my house. And when I give my life to Christ, I immediately quit working at the bar. And so I started going to this Bible study with Frank's big brother and all these old people. And so it was really weird on the weekends because I was a party girl and just couldn't stay home on the weekends. And the bar was right down the street. But I thought, I, I can't go back there because those aren't my people. But I can't go to the Christian stuff because, I mean, I'm tainted kind of like everybody knew my past. And so I didn't feel like I could go there either. So I literally got dressed at night and I would sit on my sofa mm -hmm. and I would open my Bible and I would sort of have dates literally, you know, like this and have my Bible open and say, I'm going to have a date with Jesus. And so I would I would read and I really grew a lot just just doing that on a Friday night, Saturday night. So that's 19, we're in 1977. Um, it's November of 1977 when I asked her that early in November and didn't really think much of it, but came back into New Orleans just a week after that wedding to take her to the zoo on Saturday. And we went to the zoo on a, on a, a nice uh, November day. And so, were. yeah, so I'm, I'm, I somehow know that I got in front of her. I lost track of her. I don't know. I was looking at maybe some animal or something. And so I'm just looking around. And the next thing I know, there's, <laughs> there's an arm draped over my shoulders. And I'm wondering, whose arm is that? And I look to my right, and Annette is standing there with her arm draped over my shoulder. And I said, what is this? And in my heart, I'm thinking, oh, he's handsome. <laughs> like, I never thought he was handsome. He looks like my brother. You know, he dressed stupid and he was that. young. And, you know, and all of a sudden I thought, he's good looking. Like, put my arm around him. I thought, okay, this is really weird. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I think I'm in love with you. Last week we prayed and I think the Lord's answered it. And, yeah. and of course, he's like seeing me parade men in front of him saying, oh, this is the guy I'm going to marry. And so his response was, well, you don't mind if I watch this for a That's while. That's exactly what I said. I said, you don't and mind I said, if I watch not this. a bit. I know that I know that this is something that God's done in my heart. And so watch away. Mm -hmm. Nine months later, Frank and Annette were married. Now fast forward 46 years. A lot has happened since, including three children, 12 grandchildren, being missionally minded in their community, seeing God's healing in the face of cancer, watching some of their parents who once had had very hard hearts come to a saving knowledge in Christ. And there are so many more stories of God's faithfulness and kindness to Frank and Annette. But as we wrapped up our conversation, Frank wanted to share some last thoughts specifically related to marriage. The more I know Jesus, 
the more I love Jesus and trust him and serve him. And I lose myself in that. And in losing myself in that, I find myself in that. I find who I really am. I find the real me, the real me in Christ, the new creation that God has made. And the creation that God has made has been called to love another one of his image bearers that I cannot do as a husband without her. Husbands, love your wives. And then there's this impossible part of that statement that Paul makes. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, I get the husbands love your wife part, but as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may present her without stain or wrinkle. I can't do that. And the more I know Christ, the more I know I can't do that. And the more I know I can't do that, the more I must cling to him and learn of him so that I can see that he can and desires to love my wife through me and can love her through me more than I ever can without him. Amen. <laughs> it's life. It's just what it is. It's Thank all, you. It's all life. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. What a privilege. Thank you. You know, as I thought about Frank and Annette's story, it's easy to be fixated on how different their lifestyles were. While Annette was off living a crazy life of drugs and booze and men, Frank was so straight-laced and square, not a troublemaker. But really, they pretty much had the same attitude towards God. Annette lived however she liked and rationalized her actions. If she stole something, well, the store wasn't going to miss it. If she did drugs, well, she wasn't hurting anyone. If she punched someone, well, they had it coming to them. In her mind, she was still a good person. But candidly, Annette was her own God. And in a similar way, Frank had defined God to be a slightly larger version of himself who would naturally be pleased with Frank's good deeds and conveniently be obligated to bestow blessings on Frank that he had earned through his good lifestyle. And Frank believed that God might just look the other way out of sheer benevolence whenever Frank did something wrong. Surely, Frank had earned a spot in heaven according to the way that he had defined God in his own mind. Or as Frank said, he didn't have a theology, he had a meology. Yet while both of them had radically different lifestyles on the exterior, both suffered from the same disease in the interior. Blindness to the reality that they were sinners incapable of earning God's favor or of redefining who he was. Instead, God tells us what the facts are. In fact, in Romans 3.23, God writes that all have sinned and all fall short of his glory, which is exactly why God sent his son on our behalf. If you'd like to see photos of Frank and Annette from their lives before and after Christ, you can find those on our show notes page at compelledpodcast.com. Just search for this episode. Last week, I mentioned how if you'd like to support our show, you can do so financially on our website. But there's actually another way that you can support our show, which doesn't require money. And that's simply by sending an episode to a friend or sharing with your small group at church. The number one way that Compelled has grown is through word of mouth. And we're just at the beginning of this latest podcast season. So right now is actually a great time to let others know about these testimonies. Can you take 
30 seconds sometime today and send this episode or another one that blessed you to a friend or your small group and just tell them why you like hearing Christian testimonies. Big thanks to my friend Gabriel Lafont from Keylight Marketing who helped record today's interview with the Lorias. I called up Gabe nine days ahead of time and told him I was going to be driving to New Orleans to record 15 interviews. And Gabe dropped everything he was doing and drove with me from Austin to New Orleans to record for an entire week. And that's because he believes in our mission at Compelled. Gabriel and his wife, Rachel, are the owners of Keylight Marketing, which helps mid-sized companies create an online presence they're proud of. They handle content creation, social media, and video production, and they'd love to help your business out as well. Learn more at keylightmarketing.com. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my sweet wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next episode with James Omandi, who was born into abject poverty in a remote village in Kenya. His community often viewed illness and misfortune through a lens of fear and mysticism, which left James and his family labeled as cursed. His childhood was shrouded with judgment, rejection, and isolation. But when all hope seemed lost, God intervened. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back again in two weeks with another compelling story. We'll see you then. I went onto dusty roads, walking on dusty roads in markets, marketplaces. I picked banana peels, ripe banana peels. You know, people just eat banana. They eat the fruit and they throw the, the peels on the, on, the, on the road. So I picked banana peels. I ate some. And then I put some in my pocket, bring them home for my mom to eat. And that is how we survived. I say for, you know, for lack of a better term, it was abject poverty. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.